Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. If you like The New European podcast, you're going to love The New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do. A different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining, and when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, But make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e-edition. You're going to love it and you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello Snowflakes and welcome to the New European Podcast. We offer you a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. You can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk. My name is Steve Anglesey. This week I'm joined by three guests. Matt Kelly, who's the publisher and editor-in-chief of the New European. Tim Walker, who writes the New European's Westminster gossip column, Mandrake. He previously wrote a column with that title for the Daily Telegraph. And we'll be joined too by Mitch Benn, whose new column, Mitch Benn's Weekend Politics, appears every week in the New European. First, it is Matt Kelly. Matt, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? It's very blowy this morning as we record this. It is extremely, extremely windy out there. Um, An extremely windy week in in, um, Westminster and and other places too. Um, Let's start. People who are familiar with you and are familiar with this podcast will, will know that Last week, we spoke about Meghan Markle and her relationship with the British press ahead of the Oprah thing coming out. People will also know that that um, you, for a long time, worked alongside Piers Morgan on the Daily Mirror, as did I, but obviously you worked very closely with him. Um, what are your thoughts on the his departure from Good Morning Britain this week and what is in Piers Morgan's future? Well, I mean, to take the second bit first, I, I've no idea what's in his future. I mean, his, if you remember when he got fired from the mirror, everybody was kind of thinking, uh, well, maybe he'll resurface somewhere like the, I don't know, the editor of the Mail on Sunday or something like this. And then the next thing you knew, he was a panellist on America's Got Talent and was replacing Larry King on CNN. So it's kind of uh, utterly unpredictable. And um, I won't be surprised to be completely surprised by whatever he does next, if that makes sense. But equally, you know, he's clearly carved himself out a, you know, a very um, uh, popular and controversial kind of presence on on television, and that that would suit for sure. You know, Andrew Neil's new TV channel, uh, GB News, and I know that News International, News UK, Rupert Murdoch's business are you know, investing an awful lot of money into uh, into television. So he could, pop, he could pop up there. But or equally, he could decide to take a year out and spend some time with his young daughter and wife and enjoy, enjoy life, smell the roses, write another 
volume of diaries, which would nail a few enemies, <laughs> and then uh, and then bounce back in a, in a year's time. So the short answer is I've no idea, but I I think whatever people think about Piers, um, people who know him know that he's you know a remarkably decent guy, um, and he's sincere. That's the thing about him is that. None of it is for show. There's been a lot of accusations around Piers, you know, cynically trying to find an opinion that that will get make him the story, you know, make him relevant. He's, he's honestly not like that. He does that. He doesn't have to try to do that. He does it naturally. So he's, um, you know, he's he's a remarkable person in many ways, uh, far from flawless. But um, I think he, if he's made a mistake with this one. He's he's uh, he's made it look personal, too personal. You know, he's not he's made it look like uh, Megan got got him dead at some point, and he's never quite got over it. And he's I, I think Piers is bigger than that, but um, it, there's always a risk when you when you open yourself to being seen as as um, as as it all being petty and personal that you you sort of you come over as petty yourself and, and he's not really petty. I don't think I, he's always entertaining and I, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what he, what he does next. Um, a lot of people will be surprised. I think to hear the editor of the new European, um, being complimentary about, uh, a controversialist like Piers, but as, as a journalist, I think he is, you know, one of the most remarkable, noteworthy, journalists of his of his generation well what makes him so good at that because because obviously even people who dislike him and you know i am i am mist i don't dislike him but i am i'm kind of mystified by but by the the, the vitriol of, of this Meghan markle thing but even people who dislike him think he seems to think he's done a, an incredible job at holding this government to account oh, he, well you have to be right he has you know because he that's that, that goes to my point about his uh, his sincerity because he does he has got when we worked at the Mirror for for ten years um, he had a social conscience no doubt about it you know we campaigned for all sorts of really good causes he stuck his neck out on the line against the Iraq War um, and I, I suppose that's indicative of it peers there's a, a slight pattern with peers which is He'll he'll start a campaign because he feels very strongly about something, very passionately, and he will not let it go. And at the Mirror, that campaign was the Iraq War, uh, and he ultimately got fired for uh, running uh, photographs which were faked, um, uh, and he wouldn't let it go. The big mistake Piers made was not uh, was to keep pouring. Um, pouring uh, lots of doubt and, and, and abuse on the government for once the war had started. Because at that point, I think people were looking for patriotism and it became about the soldiers and our boys, you know, and, and the mirror became seen as unpatriotic and letting the army down, which, you know, Piers' brother's a colonel or a major or something like this in the armed forces. So, he, you know, he's very pro the armed forces, but... Anyway, that was that was what cost the mirror a lot of circulation. Um, uh, on CNN, he, you know, as I think any Brit would do, was completely mystified by by gun control. And when you've got an ego as big as Piers, Piers one of Piers's favourite lines in the movies is from Top Gun, which is when the guy says to Tom Cruise, "Son, you." Your, your uh, body's writing checks that your ego's writing checks that your body can't cash, and, um, and Piers is a bit like that. You know, it, everything's about him uh, and his his abhorrence of gun control laws in uh, or lack of in the states. He would never let go of it, and ultimately, he, I don't think he ever quite understood just how different Americans feel about gun control, um, but he. He, he's, he, you know, he's sincere and he, he doesn't really care. That's the other. That's the thing that I think is compelling about watching Piers uh, and his career is that he doesn't care. To be honest, he he 
he, he lives by that mantra he's got on his Twitter handle. You know, one day you're the cock of the walk, the next day you're a feather duster. And I think he's always got that knowledge that, you know, somebody who operates like he does, does face uh, oblivion at some point. But um, I think it's quite admirable, actually, that he doesn't let that get in the way and he doesn't become diluted and he's, he's uh, you know, he remains compelling viewing and, and compelling uh, listening and reading. Uh, and he's always interesting. And, and that's, you know, in terms of journalism, the biggest crime... Is is not to get stuff wrong or to be disagreed with. The biggest crime is to be dull and boring and irrelevant, and uh, and that's uh, something nobody would accuse Piers of. I don't think he is certainly uh, he's certainly none of those things. Yes, and um, there's, there's there's part of me that that really hopes that he doesn't join GB News or a Murdoch equivalent of GB News and, and yeah. becomes a anti woke pundit um because i think it, there's so much more to him than that there's also there's also part of me that that thinks that somebody on though on one of those stations who is going to fight for um the right to say that the government have got so much of this wrong and are getting so much of this wrong would be quite a good idea it would be amazing to see what he uh, what he comes up with next um i wanted to move on to one of the great pieces in this week's New European, which is a Peter Kellner, who's talking about Britain's Super Tuesday on, on May the 6th. Super Thursday. Um, Super Thursday, of course it is, yes. Um, well, I, I like to prepare for these things early, as you know. Mm-hmm. I, I go early. Um, but Super Thursday, May the 6th, there's elections for the Scottish Parliament, there's the Welsh Assembly, there's the London um, Assembly. Um, there are hundreds of council seats. There's also 13 uh, directly elected mayor uh, roles. Up, you're you, you're living in London, um, Matt, and and obviously people are aware of the, the tragic news story in London this yeah. week. I, I just want to get your thoughts on this tweet from Conservative uh, candidate for London Mayor Sean Bailey, who's uh, trailing Sadiq Khan in the race. Uh, he tweeted yesterday, as a hus- father and husband, it breaks me to think that my wife and daughter have to live in fear in their own city. I think that's fair enough. It doesn't have to be this way. As mayor, I'll ensure that we're working to deliver for the safety of women and girls in London. In, in the context of what's going on, what, what's your reaction to that tweet? I, I find that I can't stand stuff like this because this is this is not to be politicised, this. This is... I mean, we've got to be careful what we say because the the you know court uh, proceedings are now active. Yes. But but this this isn't a pattern. It's not a trend. It's not um, uh, anything that London is notorious for. Um, you know, if, if Sean Bailey was banging on about uh, uh, you know scooter crime and mobile muggings and. Uh, you know, drug dealings, which are all going on very visibly in, in our streets, then great. But to, I, I hate this thing when people jump onto something uh, of any anything, really, to sort of politicise it. But when you're talking about the murder of, of, um, of a young woman, um, uh, I think it's, yeah, I think... People should think twice. I, listen, I, I've learned by bitter experience that Twitter is um, is a. I think it's a lousy, lousy platform for saying anything considered or anything that requires context or, or anything. You know, really, to be honest, and coming off Twitter was the the, the best thing I ever did. Um, and I think the problem with it is is that people are tempted to do all these bloody hot takes all the time. You know, like the world is waiting for your your verdict on whatever's just happened. And the truth is that nobody really cares about Sean Bailey uh, talking about how, you know, he can't bear the idea that his, the women in his family are fearful uh, over this anomalous one-off occurrence. Um, it's irrelevant. And all he's doing is opening himself up to this kind of criticism. So there's no real upside to him. If he thinks voters are going to swing behind him and make him mayor, um, then uh, on the back of that, then he's deluded. But of course, as you pointed out, he's trailing wildly. So like a kind of, you know, one of those sad 
gamblers in the, in the old style bookies who's just lost the first five races of the day. You know, he suddenly starts backing forty to one runners, chasing chasing his losses and desperately trying to create some noise on and being seen to be, you know, relevant in in whatever everybody is is currently talking about. And I think that is it's a it's a it's a sad reality about politics is that as social media has gained traction politicians have become less thoughtful i think and the things they tweet they get stuck with i mean sajid javid was um, was always doing it you know he would he would tweet some hot take on something and, and i was pretty sure that these things ended up in as government policy eventually, you know, because you find it very hard to back down from, from taking these stands. So I think social media and politicians is a lousy mix um, uh, in general, but latching onto the murder of a young woman is, is pretty poor show. Um, Labour opened their campaign on, on Thursday. Their slogan is, uh, which I suspect they've rewritten in recent days, is a vote for Labour is a vote to support our nurses. And that opens up um, the New Europeans' amazing front page this week. Do you do you want to talk about that front page and also the piece inside that from Ian Dunt, which which kind of shows that on nurses' pay we are lagging behind so yeah. many of our European counterparts? I'll, I'll, absolutely, I will. But I'd also make a similar point to the one I've just made about Sean Bailey about opportunism and sincerity. You know, this isn't. This is, yes, Labour have been, you know, leading opposition to the 1% that, uh, that Boris Johnson has kindly offered um, our woefully underpaid nurses. But, you know, to suddenly decide that that is the central plank of your uh, manifesto is, is I think, uh, opportunistic and people will see through it, you know, and, um, and see it as a kind of uh, cheap, cheap, uh, Plain. Anyway, our piece demonstrates that, you know, if you were in any doubt that nurses in the UK are underpaid, then the figures prove they are. Uh, and just opening the page now, we asked the, the front page, uh, you know, why do UK nurses earn less than Germany's? And it's not just Germany's. It's you know, uh, Luxembourg, Spain, Greece, the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, Germany. Belgium, Poland, Ireland, Denmark, Italy, Portugal, Estonia, Hungary, and Norway all pay their nurses more relative to the national average wage than we do. Our nurses get the national average wage. In those countries, they all get more. Uh, And actually, in Luxembourg, they get one and a half times the national average wage. So they're clearly valued there. Well done, Luxembourg. But, you know, I think the idea that um, we are... uh, uh, unable to give nurses a decent pay rise. And by the way, not just nurses, but everybody connected with that the frontline response to, to COVID. A decent pay rise in recognition for, for everything we've they've done for us. Uh, and at the same time, you're talking about bloody bridges from Scotland to Northern Ireland. Um, is, I think, uh, and, and, you know, the vast swathes of money that have been thrown at the response to COVID, then I think it's been a huge, huge uh, PR disaster for the Tory party and makes you wonder about their core competencies, actually, which has always been about managing the economy, supposedly. But here, they've really missed a trick. And, you know, you've got Boris Johnson wagging around, always looking for some sort of Francois Mitterrand-style grand building project, you know, if it's not the the estuary airport in London. It's, it's the bridge from from uh, Northern Ireland to Scotland. And, yeah, mate, honestly, there's, uh, come and fix the bloody roads going from Manchester to Liverpool to Manchester to Leeds and, and, and from Newcastle to Birmingham. You know, th- these are the kind of infrastructure uh, projects that will make a difference. Uh, they might not make that many headlines, but they'll make a difference. When you talk about levelling up the north, then, you know, spend your money where the problem is, not fantasising about new projects. And there's a big problem in underpaying nurses. Sort it out, you know. But, of course, just like stuff on Twitter, once they get, they dig in their heels, it's, 
it becomes very, very difficult for them to back out of it. It becomes almost an intractable position because now they're faced, as, as I was alluding to a minute ago, you know, they, they can't win now. If they do back out and give nurses a decent pay rise, they will then be accused of being financially incompetent and, and going, you know, blowing in the wind and all of this stuff. So I hold out no great hopes for any uh, re-evaluation of, of that pay rise. Um, I hope the nurses do whatever they can short of striking. I don't think, I know that it was raised as a, a prospect, but I don't think there's a nurse on the planet, uh, well, never mind in the NHS, that would walk away from the job. And that, of course, is the seeds of their ruin because that's why the government can take the piss out of them in the first place because they know how passionate and caring they are and they're not going to do stuff like work to rule and go on strike. So you become, um, what's the word? You become, uh, you know, a victim of your own benevolence, really. Mm. And that's what's happened here. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, a, a very sad state of affairs. And I think, you know, we've known about this pay rise for a week now and the latest opinion poll that we see has still got the Conservative six points uh, up ahead of, of Labour. But That's, that is remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, it really it really is remarkable. I'm just mm-hmm. a sign that everything is dominated by the, the success of the vaccine rollout um, at yeah. the moment, I think. Uh, Matt, I know you're a busy guy, so I'm going to leave you there. Um, thanks, thanks very much, Matt. And I will be back with uh, Tim Walker. And now I am joined by Tim Walker, uh, the author of New Europeans' popular and rightly popular uh, Westminster gossip column, Mandrake. Tim previously wrote for the Daily Telegraph, wrote a Westminster column called Mandrake, which is uh, which is exciting. Tim, is this is this a good time to to be a Westminster diarist, or is the combination of COVID lockdown and politics being all stage managed more more and more successfully does that mean gossip is harder to come by well I feel very sorry for a lot of my old colleagues who are doing diaries on other papers because a lot of them rely 100% on parties and they go to parties and they get all their stories there and funnily enough there was a guy I worked with at the Telegraph and I remember at Christmas saying, you know, how, how are we going to get all these stories? You know, it's, it's Christmas now. And he said, this, Tim, is where you earn your money. And I've always sort of kept that in mind. I think we are lucky on the new European in many senses in terms of the diary, because there are an awful lot of stories, which I think are great stories, that other newspapers, because of their point of view in relation to Brexit and politically, they won't use. And so I, I'm almost in a, in a very strong position because a, 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 somebody who has a great story uh, you know, about Nigel Farage or a, a story that's maybe critical of Boris Johnson, often they can't place them in other diaries. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy these days. You know, I don't think the column has been uh, in any way weakened by uh, the virus, because I, th- I think, in a sense, there have been even more scandals than we know in relation to uh, the billions being thrown around, often quite randomly and pointlessly, that, that it, it's, it's, it's almost a, a great time, I think, to be writing a diary for the new European. Uh, yes, it's, I mean, it's much more than a gossip column, of course, but I, I use that phrase because when people say, I'm writing a diary, they, they immediately think about of, of Samuel Pepys. Um, exactly. you, mentioned, you mentioned Nigel Farage. You, you've, you've written about him this week. Nigel Farage has, has left frontline politics for, I mean, he's, he's kind of Sinatra-esque in his retirements, isn't he? What is he, what's he doing now? Well, the thing with Nigel Farage is really where you need to look to find stories about him isn't Westminster, it's the company's house website. And if you look at that, you'll find that he's now set up a new outfit called Farage Media. And he's got on the, helping him with that, his former press aide, Daniel Jukes, and his fellow former MEP, David Bull. And it's interesting, really. I had imagined when I saw an outfit called Farage Media, this was going to be some new Andrew Neal-style right-wing broadcasting conglomerate. But when it came down to it, their activities so far seem to be on a a rather modest scale. He's charging £63.75 
asked to go on the video sharing site Cameo and essentially do little tailored broadcasts. So far, as far as I can see, one of his only clients has been Carol Cadwallader, the a very radical journalist who got got him to uh, do a video for her, essentially wishing her well and telling her that, you know, evil tends to to fail against good. And it was quite a moralistic little thing, but it's everything, it's everything really. But Carol, I think, thinks it's completely ridiculous. So it was, it was funny to see it. It is fun. It is funny to. It was funny to see it, and I mean, you know, he's. I think for Farage, I just follow the money, and, and and you will find Nigel Farage there. Back to back to Westminster. I wanted to get a sense of um, of where you think that the power in Westminster is lying right now. I mean, a year ago it was obvious who was running this government. It, it's um, it was um, Dominic Cummings, of course, and now we we hear you know it, it's it's much less clear, isn't it? Let's start with Carrie uh, Simmons um, or Simons. Is her is her influence? Do you think overstated by the the press, or is it understated? What's what's your kind of understanding of, of how that dynamic works? It's, it is a very odd situation, really, with her. I mean, imagine for one moment if these sort of stories were coming out about Norma Major or, you know, looking at it the other way, Dennis Thatcher or, or Philip May. It, it's odd what we're starting to accept now, that so many unelected people are clearly starting to wield a lot of power. And, and it, it, it sounds to me as if Johnson is desperately trying to appease her, the vast amounts of money uh, that she has been spending on the hideous redecoration of Downing Street at the flat that they occupy above number 11 uh, is, is, is quite extraordinary, really. And I, I mean, I don't really know, to be honest, what degree of power she has. Opinions differ. Johnson, it seems to me, seems to be a very passive character. Uh, you know, he seems to be wanting to be dominated by other people, whether it's Cummings or whether it is now Carrie. And I think it, it's, it, it seems to me that the ship of state, nobody is really in charge. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing, the, the, uh, the, you know, that nobody thought that it wouldn't actually play terribly well to give the nurses who lost their lives, some of them, a lot, a lot of them have risked their lives, 1%. This seems to be a government that's just sort of trundling along now without any sense of momentum, that's making mistakes, that's spending money quite weirdly and randomly and making essentially terrible mistakes i can't see really what it's actually doing now that's useful it's very it's very weird i mean to be fair to carrie simmons if she can get rid of the brexiteers push an environmental agenda deal with a child and deal with a baby um she probably should be prime minister herself i, I think you you write a lot about michael gove um, because Michael Gove is permanently on manoeuvres, isn't he? What do you what do you understand to be the, the the relationship between him and Johnson now? Well, my understanding was, and I got this from a, a good source, that Johnson was incandescent with rage about the trip that he made to Scotland uh, in, I think it was January, uh, which was every aspect of it was idiotic. It went on the day of the Scottish budget, so clearly the Scottish media were interested more in that than his visit. It, it seems to peak with him randomly injecting some blue fluid into a, into a deep pipette, I think it was called, and the whole thing was a, was a sort of nonsense, really. He, wasn't, he also clearly broke the lockdown rules at the time, and, and he was even reported by some people to the Scottish police. And he apparently came back from that livid and he, he sacked the guy whose name goes out of my, I can't remember, but he, he sacked the guy who was sort of in charge of advising him on Scotland. He was a spad that nobody had heard of. But the crucial thing is that spad answered directly to Michael Gove, who was his department head. And I think at that point, I thought to myself, I'm sure Gove will be going next. And sure enough, he was then relieved of the uh, Brexit brief that he had had. And Although he remains, uh, you know, in charge of the cabinet, arguably, and he's still got his his, his other sort of responsibilities, he he's, has been put out to, to pasture in a way by Johnson, because what he is doing now isn't as important as it was. And there were stories around Christmas time, before Christmas and after it, 
saying that he, you know, he would be brilliant to be the health secretary. And I'm always struck by, particularly the Sunday Times, particularly, it's often Tim Shipman, their political editor, their stories that always seem to be incredibly flattering about Michael Gove, saying he's a really great guy and he'd be really brilliant as health secretary. Now, of course, that would be a demotion from his, his job as cabinet secretary. And I think the fact that he wanted to get out of the Brexit brief speaks volumes about what is actually happening in the, in, in the, you know, in the country. And, and clearly we are seeing an awful lot of businesses and, and individual groups who are very unhappy about the way things are going. So, I, I mean, I think Gove would obviously love to be prime minister. I mean, he, he tried for that job. He knifed Johnson trying to get it. And he's a very unhappy character. And I think he, he is unfulfilled. Uh, and he clearly is, is powerful in that he's very close to Rupert Murdoch. We've seen pictures of him with Murdoch. And I, I just, I mean, it's, sort of, it's almost like talking about a sort of Shakespearean tragedy, really, when you think about all these characters. But at the moment, it's, it's almost a bit like the royal family right now. Nobody seems to be terribly happy in that, you know, in, in Downing Street, as far as I can work out. Who is going to be the, the I mean, if it's Shakespearean tragedy, then who is, who is going to do the, the, the Brutusing? Um, because you've, you've written about Rishi Sunak and the 23 meals that he had with key media players in the third quarter of, of 2020. I mean, Rishi, it's interesting that, and I saw now the briefing has began saying that his eat out to help out plan was responsible. And it, so it is alleged for a vast spike in the number of COVID deaths. Clearly now somebody, we don't have to be the brain of Britain to work it out. Somebody has been unnerved by Sunak's uh, rise to popularity. And, you know, Sunak's, he's married into the family of a billionaire. He's worth many, many millions himself. He's, a, he's, a, he, he's I think, about the only person who can meet Rupert Murdoch. And in terms of his, his, his family's money, he could almost rival Murdoch. So he's, he's a very powerful figure. Do I think he would become prime minister? Well, I hope he would be able to become prime minister, despite, you know, we're now in an age where... People are very concerned about racism. And I think the whole, we can't really ignore the, the Meghan and Harry story. Would the Tories, would the people who back Brexit, would them, with the racist undercurrents that are going on, be willing to, to back Sunak? I don't know, but he's certainly, he's certainly trying. And, and he's certainly got a bit of an unofficial election campaign well underway. Yes, he certainly has. He's definitely... Uh... He's definitely the, the sort of the man in possession, isn't he? I just wonder whether uh, whether the, the things that you that you bring up there and his enormous personal wealth as well. You know, I mean, he, okay, Rishi Sunak was a gold, Goldman Sachs banker and has probably got a lot of money, but he's, he's I think his, his wife's father is, is has got two billion. Uh, pounds worth of, uh, of of assets so um so there you go um i just want to end by saying that that despite the terrible way this country's being run despite the terrible way that brexit um is going and despite the total disaster of the nhs uh, pay rise which obviously is on the front page of this week's new european the government still appear to be leading in the polls six seven percent is there any is there any kind of gossip about Keir Starmer that could make him more interesting and more popular? Is does any what what comes out of Labour nowadays? I mean, I find it very difficult dealing uh, with uh, the, the powers that be at the Labour Party. I would like to see an awful lot more of the members of the shadow cabinet. I don't just want mm. to see Keir Starmer. There are some very significant people in the shadow cabinet. I find now, if I put in, you know, I'm hardly an enemy of Keir Starmer. I'm hardly against what, you know, that party is trying to do at the moment. But every time I put in for an interview, often with an MP, it, it, it takes ages to go anywhere because every interview has to be approved by the, the powers that be within the Labour Party at the moment. I think there's too much control freakery, if I'm honest. I think I don't want to just see... Starmer. I want to see the other people in his party. And I would like people to be more themselves within the Labour Party. I don't, I think everybody seems to be terribly guarded. I think Starmer's very frightened to use certain words, not these Brexit 
And I, th I think it's a rather unhappy situation. I think he should let rip. I'd like to, you know, I'd quite like to just to see the real Starmer unguarded. And I'd also like to see the people around him. Let Starmer be Starmer. Well, I mean, we've got until we've got until May the sixth, uh, and if he doesn't pull something uh, out of the hat by then, I think uh, we are going to uh, be, be talking about. Um, well, I think that, you know there are obviously people in the Labour Party who's in whose interest it is to uh, see Keir Starmer fail. Uh, Tim, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for for, for coming on the podcast. We will speak again very soon. Uh, his fantastic mandrake column is in the new european uh, all uh, good newsstands now three pounds or subscribe at the new european.co.uk And joining me now on the New European Podcast is comedian Mitch Benn, whose new column, Mitch Benn's Week in Politics, appears every week in the New European. It's got your name in it. It's exciting, Mitch. It has now, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a kind of a boots-under-the-table moment, isn't it? Um, very much. No, I'm very pleased with it. Very pleased with it. Yes, it's it's good. It's um, I think it, it it gives it a bit um, it gives my my bit in the paper a bit more of a concrete identity now. I think you know it's uh, and also let's face. He signed up Ian Dunton. He's every bit as sarcastic as I am, and he's far better informed. So um, I, I realised I had to pick up the slack a bit joke-wise. So it's 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 more of a sort of a satire page now, I think. It's uh, it's a very good thing indeed. I recommend uh, I recommend it. Now, you we are pressed for time with you because you it's exciting news. You are heading for your vaccine. Do you? I'm off to get my first dose today. Yes, in about an hour. So yeah. out of this, wanting to vote for either wanting to buy a. a some Microsoft shares or wanting to vote for Boris Johnson? Well, here's where we find out, isn't it? Because I've been a total Apple snob since the 90s. So if I suddenly come out with a, an overwhelming desire to go and buy Hewlett-Packard, then yes, Bill Gates is in my veins somehow. Now, this is, I mean, this is all on a, on a road to resuming life as we know it. And you, you are a, a, a working comedian. When do, you, when do you think that comedy clubs... You know, not somebody doing five nights at the O2, but a proper small comedy club. When do you think that is is going to resume? And and are things like Edinburgh going to happen? Edinburgh's very much up in the air. I mean, last year definitely wasn't going to happen. This year, because I don't know, it's it's the trouble with Edinburgh is so much gets decided months in advance. You know, the festival, as I'm sure you know, basically takes up the whole of August. But all these sort of the horse trading for the decent slots happens in sort of, well, it would have happened by now. It usually happens in like February. And then you have to decide whether you're in or out. And indeed, what your show is going to be called round about now, like uh, middle of March. Um, so the fact that nobody's pressuring me for show titles would suggest to me that it's either not happening or it's going to happen at a very, very much a reduced way. I mean, for example, I mean, you know, the venue I was in two years ago, great. Oh, Mitch, we seem to have lost you there. Great, great venue, great venue. You can get 100 people in with 100 people piling on top of each other. I'm still here. I can still hear you. Yeah, great. I can yeah. still hear you. You're back. Right. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, um, like I say, I mean, the thing about Edinburgh is um, how far in advance all the decisions have to be made. Um, yeah. You know, all the decisions as to whether, you know, what, what venue you're in, what your show's called, what it's about. That all basically has to be decided about now. So the trouble is, it's not so much that we need to know that everything will be back to normal by August. It's that we need to know right now that everything mm. will be back to normal by August. And right now, that's, that's, that's you know, I, I wouldn't care to guess just how back to normal. I mean, you know, the, the, the government's floating this as yet another one of its completely arbitrary dates about that, you know, everything will be back to normal by June true. No, it won't. It won't. I mean, some things might be back. Some things might be okay. But, you know, the thing, things are not going to be normal, normal. For, I think it's going to be so long before things are capable of getting back to normal that we really are going to be, I think, looking to redefine what normal is um, because it will have been that long since we had to abandon all hope of normality. As you know, in less than two weeks, we've been doing this for 12 months. It's so, it's so weird, isn't it? I mean, some yeah. comedians have been making money on Cameo. I see another comedian, Nigel Farage, has now joined Cameo. 
What? Yeah, I wonder how much it would cost to get Nigel to uh, hit up Nigel Farage tell Lawrence Fox to naff off. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got well, a message from my mate Lawrence. Dear Lawrence, behave yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I did think for a minute he was actually joining Cameo and would be appearing in that red cod piece that Larry Blackman from Cameo. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, just cannot now be unseen. Yes, yeah. of course. <laughs> it'd be it'd be it'd be a, a sort of a, a what would it be? It'd be a sort of a, a, a tweed cod piece, wouldn't it? <laughs> a sort of a, a, a waxed cod piece. A waxed cod piece. Yes, exactly. Yes, a sort of, <laughs> wa- yeah, sort of, a, sort of hunter's green rub, welly rubber <laughs> cod piece. Um, is ridiculous tone of total affectations. Yes. <laughs> Talking of videos, I know Rishi Sunak has made a deep impression on you, uh, his video. Talk us through his, his video work. Oh, well, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, he did this weird sort of one-person rom-com in which he kind of cast himself as Jerry Maguire and everybody else in the country as Reddy Zellweger. You know, being harsh, you know, I'm just a guy standing in front of a country commending his budget to the house, you know, and, and, and then then... A week later, he, he he was sitting with two schoolboys who I'm fairly sure didn't know who he was and then confessed to being a Coke addict and had to hurriedly correct that to Coca-Cola addict. Um, and now today we've had this action movie trailer out of number 10 congratulating themselves on what a great job they're doing on the, on the vaccine, like that's them. Um, it, honestly, I, I, I think if this government... Put a bit, put half the time and effort into running the country that they put into making videos telling us what a wonderful job they're doing running the country. They wouldn't have to tell us they're doing a wonderful job running the country because they'll be going on saying, "Wow, these guys are doing a wonderful job running the country." Yes, this is this is very true. I think you made a very good point about Rishi Sunak, which is, which is that, and of course, the thing that people miss about Rishi Sunak is that he's the richest sitting MP, isn't he? He's, yeah, he's got yes, yeah, he's absolutely loaded. Yeah, so much so that he can. Well, he can have. He's got his favorite, his own favorite brand of artisanal Coca Cola. Yes, <laughs> yes, he likes the Mexican stuff because, as he says, they still make it with cane sugar rather than that nasty high fructose cane syrup that uh, uh, that they uh, make it with in the states. Because, as, as I said, Mark Holland this week, nothing says man of the people like having rarefied tastes in Coca Cola. Um, does he get the Mexican Coke imported? And has he, has he got a special cup for drinking that out of? Like, do you remember he had that 200 quid um, electronic yes. coffee mug? Yes. That's right, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, oh, well. And does he still, you know, congratulate pubs on reopening by flashing double thumbs up to shops full of antique kitchenware? Well, I mean, it's, it, it, can't, they can't really lay a finger on him so far, can they? Which is Which is bewildering, considering that that um, Eat Out to Help Out seems to have had a fairly disastrous affair. Uh, and a fairly disastrous I'm fairly sure it did. And, um, and, and Why wouldn't course, it have done? <laughs> well, it's, it just seemed, I mean, it just seems crazy, doesn't it? I mean, you've, uh, you've, been, you've been fairly critical about Keir Starmer so far. How much of his misfortune is down to Keir Starmer? And how much of it is down to this vaccine euphoria that you're about to experience? I think a degree of it is the vaccine euphoria. I think it's almost like the kind of the pharmaceutical equivalent of like, you know, the Falklands boost or something, you know. Um, I'm sure that is not doing the government any harm. One can't help but feel, like, like I said, that, you know, he, Keir Starmer does exude this kind of weird Jedi calm, but there comes a point at which that stops being reassuring and starts being maddening. Um, and if he's playing the long game, it's a very, very long game he's playing. Um but then again, it's a long game he's got to play because barring any kind of backbench implosion, we are stuck with this shower for at least another two years, probably more like another three or four. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe the calculation is then, you know, they're not vulnerable enough right now to go after them all guns blazing and you know but i mean i still feel he could be going after them a bit harder you know i really do but you know i I mean you've got this whole calculus as well of how do we get the red wall back you know i don't know if we're ever going to get them back i think you just wait for them to die of old age quite frankly um 
But it, yeah, it is it, a very, very bizarre situation we find ourselves in right now. I mean, what he's got to go for, and I know I've been on about this, I think on the last couple of uh, occasions I've been on it, is if La- Labour needs something to rally people around right now. Uh, and in fact, the entire progressive half of this country needs something to rally around. And for a while there, it was Brexit. That was what we were rallying around, or rather, you know, the, trying to get a final deal vote or whatever, just, just opposing the whole process of just objecting to the whole process. Now, it's not to suggest that any of that's going anywhere, any of that's gone away. If anything, it hasn't even really kicked in yet. But what it has, I think, done is it's it's kind of, it's deprived the the progressive caucus of this country of, of, of a banner around around which to flock. Um, mm. But something we could definitely rally around is vote reform. Because, you know, the, 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 right now, oh, Boris Johnson can do literally anything he likes for about another three and a half years uh, and is doing anything he likes. You know, they are breaking the law. They are breaking all their own promises. They are breaking every code of conduct and every kind of procedural norm they've ever established in this country. And there is literally nothing they can do and anybody can do to stop them. And they are doing this on 30% of the available vote. Because, as we've said, you know, we've said before, in this country, it, it varies a bit from election to election, but not by that much. Generally speaking, we get about a two-thirds turnout, and generally speaking, the winning side gets somewhere in the low 40%. So at any given time, 70% of this country is living under a government it didn't vote for. Um, and that's wrong, however you slice it. And that is a banner that Labour could be rallying to. But the trouble is, in order to do that, they have to at least tacitly admit that they can't vote by... They can't win by first-past-the-post anymore. And I don't think they can win by first-past-the-post anymore. Not now they've lost Scotland. But um, and I don't think whatever happens with Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond, Labour is getting Scotland back anytime soon. I think there may be some turmoil within the SNP, but I don't think that's going to benefit Labour massively. I think as far as a lot of most Scots are concerned these Days, there's not a lot to choose between one English unionist party and another English unionist party. I think Scotland just wants to be rid of the whole deal. And I, I can't honestly say I blame them. Um, but that is something that Keir Starmer should be doing right now, I, above and beyond how he attacks the government, at what level he attacks the government, how strongly he attacks the government. That's something that, because this is something which is going to take a long time to permeate through the British political consciousness for something we could actually do that wouldn't necessarily mean the end of the world. We've got this weird thing about, I think I made the analogy once in the column that we are to proportional representation in this country, the way the Americans are to nationalized healthcare. You know, every, everybody else does it. It brings measurable benefits to all the countries that do it. And we could totally do it here, but uh, no, it's foreign and weird and wrong. Um, (laughs) I must, it's just we've got this kind of mental block about it. We have. I must let you go and get your, your jab. Before you do, I, yes. I, I just wanted to mention something um, that's in your piece this week. Um, because the, the new Amazon shop in Ealing has caught your eye. <laughs> yeah, is that where it is? I knew it was somewhere. That, I, might, I, might even, I might even go and check it out. Ealing is not that far from me. but No, it's... Uh, well, I mean, this... Uh, my, my, my girlfriend Leslie worked in retail for years and she's saying, you know, this is essentially been the holy grail of the retail business for years is, you know, the, the staff free supermarket. You, you, you've, you've got, uh, you know, people to stack the shelves and that's literally it. Everything else is just wondering. I mean, the joke I made in the paper, obviously, I don't want to give away all of the jokes in the paper. I want people to buy the paper and read my joke. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, I made a Fairly obvious joke about Jeff Bezos in the paper <laughs> with regard to the, uh, with regard, I think it's my self-writing joke of the week, I call it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's been the, but then again, on the, on the one hand, you think, well, wait a minute. I mean, this, they're not actually, um, what's what I'm looking for? They're, they're not, they're not rendering obsolete any staff that supermarkets haven't already rendered obsolete. The only difference is they're not getting the punters to do it instead because about 10, 15 years ago, the supermarket basically fired all their cashiers and put the self-checkout machines in. Um, whereas the only real difference between the Amazon store and uh, a supermarket with self-checkout machines is there are no checkout machines. No. Um, 
So that's the idea. So the, the, it doesn't actually involve firing anybody that the other supermarket chains didn't all fire, you know, 15 years ago. It's just rather than we'll get rid of all our cashier staff and make the punters do it, it's we'll get rid of all our cashier staff and the building will do it by itself. Um, I mean, that's what could, what's what could really possibly go wrong. Intriguing, you know. As oh, I'm sure so all kinds of things go wrong. Yeah, I'm sure all kinds of things will go wrong. But... Yeah. Mick, I'm going to let you go. Well, I mean, can I can I plug me book while I'm here? Of course, because you can. I, I I generally try not to plug it in the paper because it's a bit crass. The third and final part of my science fiction trilogy comes out Monday, March 15th. For one reason or another, it's taken seven years to get this book out, and so I'm kind of uh, I'm feeling a bit excited about that. So yeah, this uh, Monday, March 15th. The third and f- Terror's War. First book's called Terror. Second book's called Terror's World. There are out already. And the third and final book, finally, coming out on March 15th, is uh, Terror's War. If you like big-hearted science fiction for uh, older kids and up, then please go check it out on Amazon and anywhere but Amazon. I've got two buttons on my website. You can buy it from Amazon. One button says Amazon, and the other button says anywhere but Amazon. <laughs> so... <laughs> Great stuff. Mitch, we will talk again. Thank you. We will. Thank you so much, Stephen. I'll Enjoy see you your vaccine. I hope oh, they give well, yeah, I'm not... yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cheers now. I'll let you know how it goes. Bye-bye, buddy. Bye-bye. And finally today, the Hall of Shame. It's our new home for rubbish ministers, for political blather, for things that are annoying me generally. I want to start with James Bethel, the junior health minister. He defended the government's 1% NHS pay rise by saying that nurses have job security that many people would envy. Uh, James Bethel said nurses are well paid for the job. They have a secure job. They have other benefits. Well, you talk about secure jobs because James Bethel is a hereditary peer. He's entitled to sit in the House of Lords every day until he dies. And every day he does sit in the House of Lords, he's entitled to a £305 per day attendance allowance. On top of that, he gets travel expenses. On top of that, he gets subsidised restaurant facilities. So when we talk about job security that many people will envy, I would suggest that a job in the House of Lords is worth a lot more than a job uh, in the health service in monetary terms. Um, In terms of what it does for our country, it's a lot different. David Frost is in the Hall of Shame. We mentioned last week David Frost's incredible start as Minister for the Opportunities of Brexit. The opportunities that he's seizing appear to be the opportunity to just pour petrol over everything and set fire to it and then sit back and watch it burn. Uh, Frost tells EU, stop sulking at Brexit was the headline on the Daily Telegraph, a piece that he wrote for them. I hope they will shake off any remaining ill will towards us for leaving and instead build a friendly relationship between sovereign equals he wrote Um, and the implication of course is that all the current problems uh, that people British businesses are facing are down to the EU sulking about us leaving but the EU isn't really sulking is it what the EU is doing is behaving like Britain is a third country and and Britain is a third country uh, because of the terms of the Brexit that David Frost and Boris Johnson have led us into and And as for telling people to stop sulking and and shake off their remaining ill will, is this our British diplomacy now? We're three years almost to the day. It was March the 15th, uh, 2018, after Salisbury, that Gavin Williamson told Russia to go away and shut up. And I don't know who's going to be next to be brought into the government. Maybe it's Paul Gascoigne, who famously a reporter said to him, do you have a message for the people of Norway? And he said, yes, F off Norway. Um, Meanwhile, the Office of Budget Responsibility, the OBR, is estimating that the net cost of Boris Johnson's Brexit to the public is going to come in at almost 30 billion a year. We're going to lose 30 billion a year. So I think it was 42 billion a year we're going to lose when you when you take away the, the, the stuff that uh, that we, we don't have to pay to the EU anymore after Brexit, we're going to be down 30 
billion pounds each year and David Frost who was responsible for delivering that negligent version of Brexit his intransigence and his posturing now are risking the imposition of tariffs that are going to make things even worse and obviously there are worse things than tariffs that could happen in Northern Ireland it's at this point in the Hall of Shame that we say alack and welcome to our weekly reading from Anne Widdicombe's column in the the Daily Express. Anne Widdicombe is a permanent resident in the Hall of Shame. This week she has been uh, talking about the uh, the BBC journalist Sonia McLaughlin. Um, she's a, a rugby journalist, primarily a sports journalist. She interviewed Owen Farrell uh, in, in the aftermath of England's big loss to Wales in Cardiff. She, she asked some fairly direct questions to the England uh, captain about why they had lost. Uh, a lot of them featured on a, a sort of an early uh, decision that went against England. Um, and she got a lot of stick for it on Twitter. Uh, and she then tweeted herself. She tweeted, toxic, embarrassing, disgraceful and appalling. It's just some of the feedback I've had. Imagine getting inundated with abuse for doing your job. Uh, she then said, I'm in my car crying. I hope you're happy. Anne Whittaker has, has waded in on this. Now, do you think, A, she has uh, sent a message of support to Sonia McLaughlin, who's been treated appallingly by idiotic men, or B, something different? Why are successful people so weak when it comes to dealing with Twitter bullies, asks Sam. Every time someone gives in, they feel emboldened. No wonder the bullies enjoy their power. And if your key takeaway from the thought of a woman sitting alone, crying in her car after being abused just for doing a job is to tell her to toughen up. And I don't really know what to say. Maybe there's something missing within you. And talking of something missing within you brings me back to Sean Bailey, who I was talking about with Matt at the top of this podcast. Let me just replay again what he, he tweeted this week. As a father and husband, it breaks me to think that my wife and daughter have to live in fear in their own city. It doesn't have to be this way. As mayor, I'll ensure that we are working to deliver for the safety of women and girls in London. I am struggling to think of a more shameful and repellent piece of opportunism than this tweet, attempting to make capital from the death of Sarah Everard. It's a mark of where we are as a country and where the Conservatives are as a party. At the time of recording, Sean Bailey hasn't made, been made to remove the tweet and apologise, or just thought on his own, that didn't sound right. Maybe I'll, I'll just delete that. And at this depressing and disheartening time, the only light I can bring you is from pollsters Redfield Wilton, who polled people in London 6th to the 8th of March. And these were the results. Gammons from UKIP. 2%. Mandu Reid from the Women's Equality Party is on 4%. Berry from the Green Party is on 6%. Porritt, that's a, that name seems to ring a bell some, somewhere. Porritt from the, the Lib Dems is polling at 8%. Sean Bailey from the Conservative Party is polling at 25%. And Sadiq Khan, who's standing again as Labour for Mayor of London for Labour is on 51%, up 2%. Sean Bailey is down 3%. Sadiq Khan is, is more than double uh, Sean Bailey's polling, and, and I hope his lead increases um, after what Sean Bailey has, has done. And it's a sign that the wrong people don't always have to win. It's a sign that things can be different and that times will get better. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to us. You can subscribe to the New European at theneweuropean.co.uk. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And you can follow the New European on Twitter at the New European. That's it for this week. Mr. Campbell, play your bagpipes. Here you go.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.